once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Are you an American citizen? Does that mean anything to you, or do you take it for granted? For most of us, both are probably true. If you're a Christian, you are united with Christ and are citizens of His kingdom. How often do we take that for granted as well? Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled, If, Then, Never the Same, which covers Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you guys today. If you're new, let me introduce myself. My name is Bob Cargo. I'm the director of church planting here at Perimeter, and uh, glad to be able to bring the message to you today. Randy is away this weekend, uh, speaking at a men's conference or a men's retreat over in his home state, the state of Alabama, and we know how much the people over there need to hear good stuff. And so he's over there helping those Alabamians, but he'll be back next week and he'll resume his series out of the letter or book that is called Romans uh, on uh, the title of the series is The Ticket. So he'll be back next week to continue that. In fact, my message today is not part of that series, but it is complementary to that series. And for that reason, I want to just take a minute and, and review a few things about this doctrine of imputation. Randy's series is about the doctrine of imputation. What in the world is imputation? Well, it's a, an accounting term that became a legal term that became a theological term. Uh, to impute something is to attribute or to ascribe something to someone's record, okay? To attribute or to ascribe something to someone's record. And theologically, it's this. That at the cross of Jesus Christ, God imputed all of our sin, if we're believers in Jesus, on to Jesus. And he paid the debt. And by faith alone, when we trust Jesus, he imputes all the righteousness of Christ to our record, and we get the benefits. There's one of our church planters in Dahlonega, Georgia, named McKay Cass, and he's written a little book called The A Plus for the F. And that's the way he describes it. Imputation, salvation is this. God gives Jesus our F. We took a moral test of obeying God's law, and we got an F. Jesus took the moral test of obeying God's law, and he got an A+. An imputation is that Jesus takes our F, and he pays the consequence, and we get Jesus's A+, and all of the benefits. So that's what this imputation is all about. If I had a coin, I'd show you that the doctrine of imputation or the doctrine of justification are like two sides of one coin. Justification means we're given the righteousness of Christ. And that happens by way of imputation, okay? Imputation is the vehicle that brings us justification. And man, I'm jumping right into deep stuff, right? You never heard an introduction of a sermon like this. Jumping right into it. Now, Dr. John Murray, in his great book called Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, he said that justification and imputation... The whole church stands or falls. Biblical Christianity stands or falls on this doctrine, and he is so right. And it stands or falls with our being sure we don't confuse justification or imputation with regeneration and sanctification. Now, regeneration is when we're born again. Sanctification is our growth and holiness, our becoming more like Christ. And there's a key distinction. Regeneration and sanctification are things that God does in us. Justification and imputation are things that God does 
for us. In us and for us. And it's vitally important to understand that this one comes first. What he does for us comes first. Because if we ever get that mixed up, we will inevitably try to build our justification on our sanctification. That is, we'll think we're justified by the good lives that we're trying to live. Well, that is why Randy's whole series is so, so, so foundational. And why am I reviewing all that? Why have I jumped in those deep waters? For this reason, my message today is complementary to that. My message today is basically about this question. Once we have come to believe in Jesus alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, and experience this justification by faith, this imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Here's the question. What difference is that going to make in the way I live life? What difference will it make? Randy's already talked in his series about two of the differences that it makes. Peace with God and profit or blessing and tribulation. Next week, he's going to be back and he'll talk about a third benefit, a third result. And you don't want to miss that message. It's hugely important. Well, today, I'm going to slip in a fourth benefit, a fourth result. A fourth consequence of having this happen in your life and really believing it. And if you have come to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what I'm going to talk about today is something you need and it's something you want. What is this fourth benefit? Well, I'm going to build up to it. I'll tell you in the third part of our message today, okay? We have three parts of our message today. The first is we're going to talk about an historical and foundational truth of the gospel. Secondly, we're going to talk about an experiential and positional truth of the gospel. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about a necessary and resulting consequence of the gospel, okay? An historical truth, an experiential truth, and a necessary consequence. That's where we're going. If you have a bulletin, let me ask you, look in there for a little insert called Points to Remember. It'll give you that outline. It'll give you the passage that we're talking about today. And it's from the New Testament book called Colossians. What is a Colossian? A Colossian was someone who lived in this little town of Colossae. Colossae was a small town in what is now Turkey, what was in Asia Minor. It was close to some other bigger cities that were more significant in other ways. But in Colossae, there was a religious way of thinking that is very much like the way people in America think today. And that's what we're going to examine. If you have a Bible, look with me, please, also there. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Let me ask you to stand as we read God's Word today. So after a deeply theological introduction, hope I didn't lose you there, trying to build build a foundation. Uh, Here is God's Word that we look at today from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4 from the New American Standard Bible. Paul says, If then you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Lord, we ask you now to take your word, bring it home to our hearts. Show us Christ Jesus, and show us what he wants for us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Thanks so much. Please be seated. All right, first of all, look with me, please, at a foundational and historical truth of the gospel. A foundational and historical truth of the gospel. And what is it? It is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. You know, the resurrection is at the heart 
of what the gospel is all about. No resurrection, no good news. No resurrection, no Christianity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul discusses the centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what he says, writing to the Christians in Corinth. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and lordship of Jesus. But it especially focuses upon his death and resurrection. Let me ask you today, what do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus? What do you believe about it? You know, here in the beginning of the 21st century, we live in a very interesting time philosophically in the American culture. We are living in the transition from modernism to postmodernism. And regarding the resurrection of Jesus in the period of modernism, the question has been and still is for those that are modernists, how can you believe that a dead man was raised from the dead? If you believe in a modern scientific view of the world, how could you ever believe that someone rotted in a grave for three days and then came back to life? How could you believe that? In postmodernism, the question is, oh, it might have happened. What difference does it make? Even if Jesus was raised from the dead, isn't he just one way to God? Isn't he just one expression of God? A number of years ago, I happened upon a book entitled The New American Spirituality. And the New American Spirituality talks about the trend in our country of what is called syncretism, blending together different religious traditions. The book is sort of like a a how-to kit to look at the religions of the world and build your own religion like you want it to be. It's sort of like you take the shopping cart through the grocery store of religious truths and you can take a little bit of Eastern religion and a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of Christianity and you put it together and build your own religion like you want it to be. Well, that was exactly what was going on in Colossae in the first century, just what's going on in America today. People were blending together Judaism and Eastern religions and Christianity and bending it all together. And so Paul, in this book of Colossians that we're looking at today, in chapter 1, he basically says, listen, I want you to know who Jesus is. The passage we're looking at today in chapter 3 doesn't explicitly talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But it is implicitly there. And what Paul says in Colossians 3, he never could have said if Jesus had rotted in the grave. In Colossians 1, Paul says, I want you to know who Jesus was and who he is. Follow with me. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. Americans of the 21st century, here is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the reflection of God. And he is the firstborn over all creation, not meaning that he was the first thing created, but like the firstborn son of this culture that would have authority over the things of the Father. He is the firstborn over all creation. He has authority. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who Jesus is in relation to creation. Now, in the next verse, he starts to tell us who Jesus is in relation to the church. Verse 18. 
He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He's the leader of resurrection. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Christ. And through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The cross. The cross. This one who is the firstborn from the dead died on the cross. Now here's the point. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. And the resurrection has power because of the cross. And the cross has power because of the resurrection. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is that historical foundational truth. Let me illustrate it for you this way. From 1998 to 2002, my family and I lived in Orlando, Florida, or more appropriately to say in Maitland, Florida, just on the north side of Orlando. Near the neighborhood we lived in was this little lake, a few acres big, uh, called Lake Sibylia, a beautiful little lake. And if you went around that lake in a clockwise fashion, there would be all these beautiful homes, some little, some large, on the left side of the road. And on the right side would be a sloping, grassy uh, area going down to the water. Well, there were homes all the way around Lake Sibylia, except for one part where Asbury United Methodist Church was. And in their piece of property between the road and the lake, they had built a beautiful little amphitheater that would seat maybe 30 or 40 people, and they put up a cross, a little platform that someone could stand there and do a devotional or speak or whatever. Facing west, if you were sitting in the amphitheater, it was beautiful to see the sun go down over the water and see the cross. Well, when my younger son was about nine years of age, we went out for a bike ride together, and we went out through our neighborhood and then around Lake Sibylia, and as we rode around the lake, Easton said to me, Dad, can we stop at the cross and rest? And I thought to myself, that's too good of an illustration for a preacher to pass up, you know? Uh, He meant it very literally. We stop at the cross and rest, and I thought about it very figuratively. Let me ask you, have you ever gone to the cross to rest? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy laden under the guilt of sin, heavy laden under the terrible domination of sin. Come to me and find rest, and you'll find rest for your souls from the power and the penalty of sin. My friends, here is the foundational and historical truth of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners like you and me, and he was raised from the dead. And all the change in our lives comes from that reality. First part of our message, the historical foundational truth of the gospel. Secondly, today we're going to look at this, an experiential and positional truth of the gospel. And what is that? Our union with Christ. The passage says here, we are raised up with Christ. That's what we've experienced. In these first few verses of Colossians 3, this is how Paul says it. In verse 1, he says, we have been raised up with Christ. In verse 2, he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What beautiful imagery. And thirdly, verse 3, he says, Christ is our life. Now, this is what theologians call our mystical union with Christ. Somehow we are in Christ. Somehow we are one with Christ. We don't quite understand it. We can't totally comprehend it. But we are one with him. It doesn't mean we're divine. But it does mean that we become beneficiaries of everything that he's done for us. There's a theologian named Louis Burkhoff, and this is how he has defined 
our union with Christ. He says, it is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life, their strength, of their blessedness, and of their salvation. Wow, that's rich. You see, the Holy Spirit may be the delivery man, but Jesus is the source of our strength, our life, our blessedness, and every part of our salvation. This is the same truth that Randy Pope, our lead pastor, talks about when he talks about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes to Romans chapter 6. Look at some of the verses in Romans 6. We'll review it just for a second. Verse 5, for if we've been united with Christ like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Do you see how this connects with Colossians 3, the life and resurrection of Jesus, or rather the death and resurrection? Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Verse 11, and so in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Another way to say it would be Consider yourselves or reckon yourselves. That's what Paul is saying here. Reckon it to be true. Count it to be true. Put your faith in this truth. You can take it to the bank. You are dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies anymore, that you would obey its evil desires. In other words, sin used to be your master, and now that relationship of master and servant has been killed You're dead to sin in that way. It's no longer your master. It's no longer your drill sergeant. It's no longer your boss. You are alive to Christ. Now, here's the way we could describe it. The the little chart we'll put up here. The gospel is Christ's death and resurrection. And this passage says we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And that means we're united with Christ in the gospel. You remember back in math class or logic class years ago that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, remember that? Well, that's what we're saying right here. If the gospel is Christ's death and resurrection, and if we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, then we are united with Christ in the gospel. And the gospel is today the source of our freedom, the source of our power against temptation, It's the source of our strength for a holy life and a changed life. It all comes to place because we're one with Christ, okay? One of the pictures of this is our union with Christ is it says here that we are hidden with Christ in God. The picture here is that Jesus is the forerunner. He's the forerunner who's gone to the place of the Father, and he is taking us with him to the right hand of the Father, The right hand of the Father is the place of acceptance. It's the place of honor. It's the place of blessing. And we get acceptance and honor and blessing because Jesus has taken us to that place. We are bound up in the bundle that is Jesus. And when Jesus goes to that place of honor and safety and resurrection, we go with him. It's like Jesus tucks us into his pocket and he takes us to the place of safety And he takes us to the place of transformation because we are hidden in Christ. We are hidden with Christ. This whole idea of being hidden with Christ or in Christ, there are two stories in the Old Testament that illustrate this so well. The first is the story of the cleft of the rock. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is in the process of leading Israel to the promised land. 
And when Exodus 33 comes along, he asks if he can see the glory of God. And God says, no, you can't see my glory because if you see my face, if you see my glory, you'll also experience my judgment. But then God said to him, but there is a place near to me, a critical phrase. There is a place near to me. And I will put you there near to me in the cleft of the rock. And I will put my hand over that cleft and I will pass by and then I'll move my hand. And you can see my back. You can't see my face. Well, what was the cleft of the rock? Here's what it was all about. The cleft of the rock provided the nearness of God while protecting Moses from the judgment of God. Let me say that again. The cleft of the rock protected Moses from the judgment of God while delivering the nearness of God. What does Jesus do for you and me, my friends? Jesus does exactly the same thing. By his death and resurrection, he protects us from the judgment of God while providing us with the nearness of God. We are hidden in him. Another great picture of being hidden in Christ comes from the story of Elisha, the prophet Elisha raising from the dead a little boy. There were two prophets in the Old Testament whose names were similar, similar, Elijah and Elisha. This is a story of Elisha. And he was ministering to some people that were not Israelites. They were Shunammites. And by the way, part of the point of that story is to say that God loves people of all races and ethnicities. He's not just saving the Jews. Even in the Old Testament, he was saving people who trusted him who were not Jews. It was always open to everybody. And so there's the story of Elisha ministering to the Shunammite man and woman. They loved his ministry so much, they prepared an upper room, a bedroom, that whenever he was in the area, he could stay there with them. They were not able to have children, and so Elisha prayed for them. And within the year, the woman gave birth to a wonderful son that they loved very, very much. When that son was still a little boy, he went out with the father and with the father's workers out into the fields when they were reaping the harvest. And while they were out there, the little boy began to complain. He said, my head, my head, it's hurting. They thought the heat was getting to him. So the father told some of the workers, take the boy back to his mother. And they did so, and they came and they put the little boy on her, his mother's lap. And he stayed there, and she tried to take care of him, but around noon that day, he died. The mother didn't tell anyone. She took the little boy up to Elisha's room and laid him on the bed. And then she, then she sent a servant and said, go find Elisha, the man of God, and bring him back. And when Elisha came back, he entered the room and saw the boy lying there dead. He prayed, he prayed, and then he did a weird thing. He laid himself out over the boy, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. And the boy's body started to grow warm. Elisha stood up and prayed again. And he laid down again, covering the boy, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. And the boy came back to life. He was raised from the dead. What happened here? The boy was hidden by Elisha. And in a sense, Elijah took away from him that illness. And Elisha's life went into that boy, so to speak, by the power of, of God. And the boy was raised from the dead, raised to newness of life. My friends, that is the gospel. On the cross, Jesus laid himself out over us. And the judgment and death that we deserve was given to him. And then by his power, we are raised to newness of life. That's the gospel. 
That's what it means to be hidden with and in Christ. Where's this sermon going? <laughs> we talked about an historical and foundational truth of the gospel. Jesus died for sinners. He was literally raised from the dead. We talked about a, an experiential and essential and, and positional truth of the gospel. We are alive in Christ. We're united with Christ. Something amazing, something miraculous has happened in us if we've trusted in Christ by repentance and faith. Now, where is all of this going? It's going right here. There's also a resulting and necessary consequence of the gospel. A resulting and necessary consequence of the gospel. And what is that? It is a changed life. This is the message of Colossians 3. The result of believing the gospel is a changed life. Justification, imputation is something that he does for us. But justification is like an engine, a train that has a caboose. And the caboose is called sanctification. The caboose is having a changed life. The caboose is overcoming the power of sin in our lives. And here's the beauty of the gospel. There are two things about sanctification that is taught in the scriptures. Two things, and it's important to remember them both. One is this, sanctification is a work of God. Sanctification is a work of God. It's a work of his grace. It's a work of his grace based upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. But number two, we are responsible to seek it. And both of those parts of sanctification are hugely important to remember. If we ever forget one or the other, we're in trouble. Sanctification, a changed life, is a work of God's grace. And it's a work of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we indeed are to seek it. Go a little, a little deeper on this. The Westminster Larger Catechism is a way of using questions and answers to, to learn good theology. Question number 75 says, what is sanctification? Let me ask you to read with me the answer to that question. Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation of his spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put into their hearts, and those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened, as they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. Let me point out some things here that we've just read, a few observations. First of all, I want you to notice that sanctification is a work of God's grace. Never ever think that justification in the beginning of salvation is by grace, and the rest of it is simply by law and effort. The law and, law and grace are involved in both, and the work of Christ is involved in both. So both are a work of God's grace equally. Secondly, notice here, that the sanctification is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. What's the Holy Spirit doing when he frees us from the power of sin? He's simply applying to us the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is central to overcoming sin and being holy people. And notice the imagery here at the end of this. He says, we die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. What a beautiful picture. And this is exactly the picture, my friends, of Colossians chapter 3.
Paul says right here, die to sin. You have died to sin. You've been raised to newness of life. And then he gives us this responsibility in verse 1. He says, keep seeking the things of Christ. Keep seeking the things of Christ. It's a work of God. And I am to seek it. It's a work of God's grace, but I am to seek it. It's a work of the cross, but I am to seek it. It's a work of the empty tomb, but I am to seek it. Therefore, what does it mean to seek these things of Christ, to seek the things above? Let me give you three answers to that. First of all, to seek the things above, to seek the things of Christ is to seek his kingdom. His kingdom. Every time a knee bows to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God expands. And God is all about the numeric and geographic expansion of his kingdom. Is that what you're seeking? Is that what I'm seeking? We are to seek the numeric and geographic expansion of his kingdom. Secondly, we are to seek his righteousness. His righteousness. And this part is really central to this message. In the verses after the passage we've read, beginning in verse 5 of Colossians 3, Paul begins to describe the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of life that we're to embrace and that we're to seek. When he says seek the things above, he doesn't mean think about people playing harps in heaven. He means seek the godliness that comes from Jesus. And then in verse 5, he starts to describe this. And the way he describes it is fascinating. He basically says the old way of living is the way of death. Don't seek it. The new way of living is the way of life. And you've been raised to newness of life, so seek it. Follow with me in verse 5. Very quickly, you'll see it on the screen. He says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, I want you to notice here, he said, put it to death. In other words, these things in verse 5, these are the ways of death. And Paul says, actively put to death the ways of death. The old preachers of several centuries ago called it the mortification of the flesh. They used to say, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I like that. Put to death these things by the power of the gospel. Put them to death, but in his power, not your own. Verse 6, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you'll want to remember that about next week's message. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with his practices. And you've put on your new self. And notice it says, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Why is it that we reject all this kind of sexual impurity and idolatry and greed? Why is it we reject speaking to one another this way and having these attitudes of the heart? Why do we reject all that? Because we are renewed image bearers. And those ways of behaving don't fit with being a renewed image bearer. And secondly, everybody we interact with is an image bearer. Maybe renewed, maybe not. Because they're made in the image of God, and I'm made in the image of God, and I'm being renewed in the image of Christ. I am to live a certain way. Why? Because I've been raised to newness of life, and I'm killing the ways of death. Verse 11, 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I have a terrible confession to give you. About 15 years ago, I preached a similar message on this same passage, and I skipped verse 11 because I didn't know how it fit. I didn't know why it was there. It didn't have a command, and so I thought it wasn't important. And since then, I've come to realize how this important this is. Right here, Paul is saying, there are to be no racial and ethnic divisions between us. There are to be no socioeconomic divisions between us. We treat each other with love and respect and inequality, no matter how the world might try to break us apart. And it's actually very critical to the passage. How are we to treat each other? He tells us, beginning in the next verse. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. My friends, this is newness of life. This is a changed life. This is sanctification. This is the consequence of being raised up. Let me ask you a question based on the story I told you a minute ago. After being raised from the dead, do you think the Shunammite boy was ever the same? I don't think so. He was a little boy, but he knew he had died and knew, he knew he had been brought back to life. Let me ask you this, if you know the story of Lazarus. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, do you think he was ever the same? Not at all. My friends, that is why the title of this message today is Never the Same. If then you have been raised up with Christ, you will never be the same. Therefore, keep seeking the things of Christ. That's the good news of this passage. This is why it's so, so critically important. We seek his kingdom. We seek his righteousness. And then number three is this. We seek Christ himself. A Christian's life is to be centered on Christ. My wife and I have lived in a number of different places in our 30 years of marriage. We lived in Oxford, Mississippi. We lived in Atlanta, Georgia, near Emory University. We lived in Maitland, Florida. We've lived in Johns Creek. We now live in Peachtree Corners. We've lived a lot of places. And every now and then, we will look at one another and say, you are home. Wherever I'm with you, that's home. And that's true on a human level. But in an eternal level and a much deeper level, Jesus is our home. Wherever Jesus is, that is home to us. Keep seeking Christ. You don't just seek him to get a ticket into heaven. You seek him every day. Keep seeking Christ. He is our home. Two concluding questions and a closing story. Two concluding questions are these, and it comes from this observation. Paul says here, keep seeking the things of Christ. And therefore, my question to you is, have you ever begun? Have you ever begun seeking Christ? Maybe as you've heard this message today, you've thought, this is also new to me. I've never sought Christ like this. If that's the case, then today we hope you will turn from sin and trust in Christ alone to be your righteousness. Start seeking Christ today. And the second question is this, have you become distracted? Have you become distracted? 
Maybe the Shunammite boy did forget on some days. Maybe Lazarus did forget some days. And the truth about you and the truth about me is that a lot of times we do forget. So today, the point of my message is to say, every day, let's not forget. Remember what God has done and remember who you are and live in accordance with who you are. Final story is this. Story about a man by the name of Wilfredo Garza. Mexican, he lived a life of an illegal alien for 35 years. For 35 years, he would come across the border and sneak across the border and try to get work. And sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't that he would find work. But over and over again, he would be found out and bust back to Mexico. Four different times, bust back to Mexico. And four different times, he would once again swim the Rio Grande River and come back into the States to find work. Finally, after 35 years of doing this, he got fed up with it and went to an immigration attorney's office to see if anything could be done to help him out. And when he went to the immigration attorney's office, what he discovered was this, that his father was actually born in Texas and worked in Texas, which meant that his father was an American citizen, which meant that he was an American citizen. Now imagine if Wilfredo Garza had continued to live like someone who was in the States illegally, always looking over his shoulder, never free. My friends, you have been raised up with Christ. Live out who you are. Live out what he has done. You have newness of life. Let your life never be the same. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work of grace in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we ask you that indeed we would never, ever be the same. We ask you that every day we would believe with all of our hearts that you have done something for us, and now you are doing something in us, and it all comes from an empty tomb and a bloody cross. And we ask you to give us the fullness of your salvation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.